Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day. This is a podcast about what's in the air and up for discussion at the 8th Global Peter Drucker Forum. It takes place in Vienna every November. This year's forum theme is the Entrepreneurial Society. And with me, one of the main speakers, Professor Gary Hamill, who's a writer, a consultant, known for a succession of books, and uh, a visiting professor at the London Business School. Gary, what's your, to use your own phrase, jointly with the late C.K. Prahalad, what's your core competence? Well, I suppose my core message in any case right now is that if we're going to reverse the rather abysmal productivity growth figures that we've seen in the West over the last uh, few years or longer, we are going to have to root bureaucracy out of our large organizations. It's becoming a competitive drag, an economic drag. We reckon it costs the OECD countries about $9 trillion of lost economic output, and we think we can change that. That's management, is it? That's the bureaucracy is the management of an organization doing things in the way... 20th century companies always did things, the mass production world. Yes, if you look at the number of managers, supervisors, administrators, and support staff in most countries, that group of people have been growing as a share of employment much faster than other jobs that are there. And so in a sense, the bureaucratic tax is going up, not down. This is despite all of the hype about being in a gig economy, a free agent nation, and so on. Simply not true. They find ways of doing managerial things that becomes a a business in its own right. Well, it does. It becomes self-reinforcing, you know, the routinization, the formalization, the stratification. And so people who have power are pretty good at getting more of it. The bureaucratic class just tends to expand at the expense of everything else. So we're seeing a lot of mature corporations where this agglomeration of power in the bureaucratic part of the organization, away from what the company actually does or produces, is kind of a badge of maturity, isn't it? Well, it seems inevitable. It's kind of, you know, as companies grow, they accumulate more bureaucracy, get more level. Rules proliferate, staff groups expand, individual employees lose their share of voice. And I think you'd almost imagine that it's like the correlation between age and health care costs. And so as companies mature and get older, bureaucracy expands. We don't think it has to be that way, and there are enough examples to suggest that there is an alternative. Okay, give me some. Well, for example, I think of General Electric, the uh, global uh, industrial company. In one of their plants in, in South Carolina in the United States, they're building, assembling jet engines, one of the most complex products in the world. And they have a plant of 400 technical employees and one plant manager. So you imagine a span of control of one to 400. And they're now taking that idea, which is built around local teams, self-managing teams, and they're expanding that across many other factories within GE Aviation. They do seem to have a sort of innovation drive in GE. I was recently looking at 3D printing, and they have actually brought off 3D printing for aircraft engine parts, which is subject to such strains you wouldn't believe it would actually work in that. And this is becoming a feature of the way they want production to go. So they have that mentality of change, do they? Well, I think so. Jeff Immelt, their chairman and CEO, has gone on record as saying that bureaucracy is the number one challenge for GE. And they're doing some very creative things to rooting that out, not least of which going business by business and teaching people the principles of lean startup. How do you do things faster, cheaper, with less resources? So yes, they're one of the more committed organizations to management innovation, but they, but they have been for 100 years. Yeah, but they've got embedded processes going back so long that changing those is wrenchingly difficult, isn't it? It's very, very difficult. You know, a lot of the companies that we celebrate as being kind of post-bureaucratic, Spotify might, might be one of them, for example, they're companies that were born that way, that don't have that deep legacy of existing processes. So you're absolutely right, Peter. It is a much more difficult thing to weed those things out, but still 
possible. Now, you live in Silicon Valley, California, and there are a lot of new companies, obviously, created all the time. How new are the organizations they produce? Seems to me they go mature ever so fast, the big companies. It's a question of size, isn't it? Well, it is. Companies start lean, flat, open, free, but very quickly as they become more complex, they start to become more bureaucratic. And it typically happens as you bring in experienced leaders from other companies who that's the way they, they manage. They just assume that an organization have multiple levels, power is going to trickle down, big leaders are going to appoint little leaders. So they bring that DNA with them. And the hierarchies are very similar to the ones that were evolved around mass production and the great big 20th century companies still in the new ones, aren't they? Yes, bureaucracy is is a social technology. It was invented, as you say, more than 100 years ago to turn human beings into semi-programmable robots. And and, and that was, of course, at a time, Peter, when most employees were, you know, very low skilled, if not illiterate, when information was very expensive to move. So organizing up that hierarchy was the most efficient way of doing it. Now you have employees that are well-educated. Information can be moved almost instantly. We live in a much more dynamic world. So the old model simply doesn't make sense, but it's with us as a legacy in any case. Now, I know personally from meeting you quite a lot of times over the last 20 years, you've been banging on like this for an awful long time. You're not having that much effect on changing corporations, are you? Well, I would say that there's a consensus that is building. You know, there's just a recent study, I believe, done by Bain. And I think uh, if you ask senior leaders around the world now, they are going to tell you that the primary constraint on their capacity to grow and innovate is not regulation. It's nothing in the external environment. It's their internal management model. So I think that understanding of where the real enemy is, is starting to grow. Companies realize that we've re-engineered our operating model. We're now trying to think creatively about our business model. But what we yet have to tackle is our management model. And what we've been working on is some new tools, new platforms that can help companies do that in a a more efficient way. They can help them retool the way they lead, manage, organize for a world where they have to be more nimble, they have to be more innovative, and they have to be more inspiring to the people who work inside of them. Bring in this uh, new threat, the rise of the robots. Artificial intelligence can do quite a lot of the at least nominally, quite a lot of the jobs that used to be done in this thickening bureaucracy of yours. Clearly, I think it's an interesting threat over the long term. I think it's probably overrated in the short term. You know, what makes human beings unique is our capacity for creative problem solving. And I think robots are not going to do that right away. They're going to take over a lot of menial jobs. But interestingly, the people doing those menial jobs today have a lot more creative capacity than we're using, than we're taking advantage of. So in a way, I think the challenge is, yes, let the robots have the commodity jobs. What we want to do is decommodify work, give people the freedom in their organizations, train them to think like business owners, let them make smarter decisions because they have the capacity to do so, but not in the old model. And yet, and yet, command and control is deeply ingrained in the way people think about organizations. Nobody got sacked for doing command and control. And this is why I think, Peter, we really do have to step back and think about this as a national economic priority. You know, the outgoing George Osborne in the UK. uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. You know, but before he left office, he said, raising productivity growth is the challenge of our lifetime. And I think the key to that is recognizing there's an enormous amount of latent capability in our organizations that is not being used. You'll remember one of the great breakthroughs of Toyota a couple of generations ago was the idea that ordinary employees could be inspired problem solvers, and Toyota gets more than a million suggestions per year out of their employees. Most organizations aren't even coming close to that because, again, we have a kind of creative apartheid and organizational caste system that distinguishes the thinkers from the doers, and we're really not letting people bring the gifts of their imagination and creativity to work. I'm a middle manager. I hear you talking. Uh, The obvious question from me is, you get rid of me, what do I do? 
Well, the fact of the matter is most people who are in managerial roles today, they are smart people. They probably started out having very strong technical skills in some field, and, and, and we can redeploy those skills. It's not like we don't have enough work for them to do. But I think what's happening, you see, you see this happening very purposely right now in a French company called Michelin, a world-leading tire company, is where they're really saying as a leader, your role is going to shift from having power over – to having power with a team where you are there mainly to facilitate and ultimately a lot of that managerial work will get absorbed by the team as it is right now in in that plant I mentioned in GE Aviation. So I think if you're a leader today, a manager today, you have to assume that the way that work gets done is going to change. You're going to have to change with it and you're going to have to ask, how do I add value in my organization independent of an organizational rank? You also admire self-management, don't you? Self-managed organizations seems a bit fuzzy to me. You go round them and you can't quite work out what's going on, partly because, of course, you, the frame of reference is so different and partly because you wonder whether it is really working and there isn't some kind of secret other thing going on behind the scenes. I don't know. I get puzzled by self-management. It's deeply... Um, deeply uh, curious. Yes, it's a little troubling, isn't it? Because if you're used to seeing organizations with you know, ranks of uh, managers and executives and so on, and you go into to a company where you just don't find that, in the past written by this California tomato processor Morningstar, about a thousand employees and no managers at all. And it, I've been to see them, and it was deeply mysterious even as I talked to the, the people on the shop floor. Yes, yeah, so it was mysterious indeed. But you know, not all that unusual. If you came to the London Business School and you started talking to the faculty, you'd find that most of us don't really think we have a leader. We don't really report to the department head or the dean. And so it's, it's not that we don't know how to self-organize as human beings. We largely do. But, but there are some very critical prerequisites. One, every employee has to have financial literacy. You, know, you need to know how the business works and what makes it run. Number two, you have to have a short feedback loop between what you do as an individual and feedback from the customer and feedback from the market so you can self-adjust your own actions. And you have to be accountable to somebody. It may not be a manager, but more likely it's going to be your peers. And if you're not doing their job, they will tell you. So this is not a free-for-all. It's not chaos, but it is a different way of exercising control and leadership. But the really clear-cut way of doing self-management is when the workers own the company, and Morningstar in particular is they're working for the owner, aren't they? And he's not going to concede power in that sense. It is a logical concomitant of organizing yourself, isn't it? I'm not so sure because I think we've put a great emphasis, or in some quarters we put a great emphasis on employee ownership. But the fact of the matter is, if I'm an employee and I work for a reasonably large company, my share of ownership is going to be minuscule anyway. I think what's much more important is that I feel that I have autonomy to do my job. For example, I have an autonomy to hire the colleagues that I want to work with. I have autonomy to do the right thing for the customer because, yes, ownership is one way of feeling empowered, but there's many other much more practical ways that have to do with giving people authority and control over their daily work life. Somebody else at this conference is Deborah France from W.L. Gore. That's an extraordinary company and has been since it was set up 50 years ago, and it's still apparently working, isn't it, the self-organizing they do? It is working, Peter. And I, you know, the reason I think this is, and it's, and it's a subject at this entire conference, so it just wouldn't have been a half a decade ago. So to your question, is this gaining ground? I think it is. And I think it's gaining, gaining ground for some very, very practical reasons. One, as I said, more and more leaders understand that now what finally stands in the way of building an adaptable, innovative organization is the bureaucracy itself, number one. Number two, you have a new generation coming to work 
first generation in human history whose primary reference point is not a traditional hierarchy. They grew up on the web. Your ideas compete on an equal footing. If you're a leader on the internet somewhere, you're a leader because you have followers, not because somebody gave you a title. So those, those forces, coupled with the fact that now we have technology that allows us to aggregate ideas and organizations, to share information, to break down the pyramid, those things are making this inevitable. But we're still inventing this. So, you know, bureaucracy wasn't born in a day. The alternative is not going to be born in a day. Do companies use you as a tease, as an away day sort of um, inspirer, and then go back after the away day is over and go on in the same old way. You're a provocateur, aren't you? But do they find mechanisms for embracing and controlling the ideas that you flame away with at their away days. I hope I'm provocative here and there, but much more importantly, we've been working to build tools and platforms that allow organizations to do this as a real thing. For example, in the U.S. division of Adidas, the sportswear company, we trained over eight weeks. We trained about 2,000 of their employees to think like business innovators. This is all done with online learning, very intensive, because we had to, first of all, invest in their creative capital. And then following that, we went back to the same group of employees and we said, if we were really going to be serious about innovation at Adidas in North America, what has to change? In all of these things, in the way we hire people, the way we allocate our resources, the way we approve projects, and this group of people hacked the management model of their company, more than 900 suggestions, then the teams evaluated those ideas, I think 10,000 evaluations, they picked the top 20 ideas to go ahead with and start experimenting with. So we now have platforms where we can, we can invite the entire organization to kind of hack that old bureaucratic model, suggest and experiment with alternatives. But there has to be follow through, there has to be some response by the conventional management to the ideas that flow as a result of this. Quite often it's a letting off steam session, then you come back and the same old Mm. things prevail, and you're more aggrieved than ever because you had a chance to see the other world and then it was retreated. Absolutely. You can't can't open up this kind of a conversation in an organization. And by the way, people on the front lines know what's getting in the way of their ability to do the right thing for the customer and innovate. You can't open that up and ask them what will change without following through. Because if you do absolutely right, you create a, a huge amount of cynicism. The mistake I think a lot of leaders have, have made in the past is to think that you can root out bureaucracy top down. You can't. It has too many high-level defenders, too many people who will slow walk the reforms. You have to create a bottom-up pressure. When you have 50 or 100 employees say, this is a stupid rule, or this needs to change, or we need more time to experiment, it's almost impossible for a single leader to get in the way of that ground-up consensus takes a very brave company to do that, though, doesn't it? But increasingly, they have no choice. And I think progressive leaders, you know, in a sense, know that the, the ship has already sailed. Most organizations today, the predominant communication pattern is not vertical anymore. It's not that leaders get to control the conversation. It's horizontal. So you might as well take advantage of that and use it productively, as opposed to just having people kind of whining and complaining there. Many thanks to Professor Gary Hamill, who's been speaking at the Global Peter Drucker Forum here in Vienna. I'm Peter Day. This is the Drucker Forum Report. More podcasts coming up soon.